What a powerful image. The lamb, the lion, Jesus. Let us pray. Jesus, your disciple John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Each and every one of us in this room and those who may be watching online are sinners. We have all fallen short of the standard you have laid out for us. And we are in need of a Savior. That Savior was the Lamb of God. Today we pause and we thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary that redeemed us, that ransomed us, and made us whole so that one day we could be victorious with you in heaven. Now as we go to your word to look at the Lamb, to learn about the Lamb, I pray that your spirit would speak today. Your spirit would remove any obstacles that would stand in the way of us receiving the word that you have, not that I have, that you have for us. Would you do that in the power of your name? And everyone said, Amen. Amen. On Wednesday of this week, there is a movie that is coming out and will be released called Air. And it releases on April 5th, 2023, 4523. I'll let those of you who get that reference rejoice in that. And this movie is about the company Nike and one particular event that happened in their company's timeline that brought them uh, to the forefront of the athletic shoe and apparel market. I checked just this past week and Nike currently owns about 30% of the athletic shoe um, market. Now, Nike wasn't always the leading brand. If you go back to 1984, there were actually two shoe companies that were outselling Nike. One was Converse and one was Reebok. Anybody have a pair of Converse All-Stars or used to? course you did all right but in 1984 um, which the movie will tell about everything changed when a few individuals went all in on a young basketball player who had never stepped foot on an NBA court and he just happened to be the greatest basketball player of all time his name (laughs) was Michael Jordan now um, the company, Nike, just to give you a little background, it was founded in 1964, and the original name of that company was Blue Ribbon Sports. I mean, talk about a boring name. And they worked with a company in Japan, and they offered low-cost but high-quality running shoes. Uh, seven years later, after that, they decided that they wanted to begin manufacturing their own shoes, and so they needed a new name for the company. Now, Phil Knight, who is one of the founders of that company, had about 50 employees, and so they polled the employees to try to get a new name for the company. Apparently, he didn't like any of their suggestions, so at the time, he was going to go with his suggestion, and wait for it, here it is, he was going to call the company Dimension 6. This is why, yeah, you don't let the boss make decisions when it comes to naming the company. Not a good name. He listened to his employees, and the first employee that Nike ever had, his name was Jeff Johnson, he came up with the name that we know today as Nike. Now, where does Nike come from? What does this name come from? The Nike name actually is a Greek word. In Greek, it's pronounced Nike. Everybody say Nike. Nike. So now, go buy Nikes, don't buy Nikes. 
just joking with you. But that's where that word comes from. And the word in Greek, nike, means victorious or to conquer. And that word came from Greek mythology. You see, the Greeks worshipped a goddess named Nike or Nike. They put a picture up here. This is what a statue in ancient Greece would have looked like. And they believed that the goddess Nike would fly around during battle or fly around during competition, granting speed and granting strength to those who worshipped her. Now, when the Roman Empire came in and conquered the Greeks, you may know from history that Romans adapted a lot of the Greek gods. Nike was one of those gods in which they adapted. However, they felt she needed a name change. So they changed her name to Victoria. Do we have any Victorias here today? No one wants to admit it. All right, a couple. <laughs> Victoria is where we get the word victorious or victory that is what this all means even today when they pass out olympic medals when an athlete is victorious the image of nike or victoria the goddess of victory is engraved on the back of that medal now you might be wondering what does all of this have to do with palm sunday i'm going somewhere trust me what if i told you that the word nike or nike was actually referenced in the Bible some 25 times in the New Testament. Remember, the word Nike or Nike means victorious. There was a familiar saying throughout the Roman Empire in which the early first Christians lived in the first, second, and third century. And the saying for the Roman Empire was this, victory or Nike belongs to the Romans for they have slain more than their enemies. For the early Christians, for these first followers of Jesus, this would have felt all too true. The images of Victoria, the goddess of strength and speed or victory, the images of Nike or Nike would have been everywhere, continually reminding them of exactly who was in charge. And at that time, it was the Roman Empire. How many of you recognize that we too, as followers of Jesus, also live with a constant reminder that we are in the minority? We live with the same type of reminder. Yet despite all appearances, Jesus promised his followers then, and he promises us today, that we will be the ones blessed in Nike. We will be the ones that eventually will be victorious. Often when we think of us as his followers, of God's people being victorious, we go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelations. We say things like, I know how the story ends. I've read the last part of the book. Rightfully so. 17 times actually in that book of Revelation, the word Nike victorious is used let me show you some examples revelation chapter 2 verse 7 john writes anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches we'll talk about that in a moment 
But to everyone who is victorious, everyone who is Nike, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. In verse 26, to all who are Nike, victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all nations. Moving to chapter 3, verse 5, all who are Nike, victorious, will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mind and finally in verse 21 of the third chapter those who are Nike those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I Jesus was victorious and sat with my father on his throne however as much as victory is mentioned at the beginning of revelation and throughout when we get to chapter 5 there is a surprising image of our conqueror that John reveals to us. So today we're going to go to the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible with you or your phone and you want to go there now, you can do that. Revelation chapter 5. Now, before we get to the specific text, I want to talk about the book of Revelation. Which, by the way, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. There's no S on the book of Revelation. It's Revelation, all right? Now, how many would acknowledge today that the book of Revelation can be hard to understand? can be hard to read. There's beasts, there's horses, there's 666 numbers, and there's a lot happening and going on. And we're very drawn to it. And, but, but at the same time, it can be really hard to understand. Let's talk about that for a little bit. There are two things that we bring to the book of Revelation... That are problems. Oftentimes, many Christians in reading the book of Revelation approach it in one of two ways, both of which are problematic. One is speculation and the other is silence. Here's what I mean by that. Many people read and look at the book of Revelation through the lens of speculation. And what they're wanting to understand is they're wanting to know how it all plays out. They're wanting to know the who. Who is the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? What is 666? What is the mark of the beast? Is my debit card or credit card the mark of the beast? Should I use it? Should I not use it? Who are the players involved? When is all of this happening and what is it going to look like? Are we supposed to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial? How many know what I'm talking about? We get so consumed with that. Why? Because it sells. There's books about it. There's movies about it. It's problematic, though, if we read Revelation through the lens of speculation. The other problem is when we read the book of Revelation through the lens of silence. And here's what I mean by that. Those that get frustrated with that group go, you know what? I don't need to worry about it. It's just going to play out in the end, so I don't even need to read that last book. That is not a good reproach either. Both of those approaches have problems. One of the things I just want to recommend, um, Scott McKnight, who's a theologian and professor of the New Testament at Northern Seminary, uh, just actually in the past month, released a book called Revelation for the Rest of Us. If you are interested in that, I highly recommend it just to help understand. I don't have time today to go through all of that, but it's a great book if you're interested in, in understanding more about the book of Revelation. But again, before we get to the text, overall, and, and again, this is really brief in the town, amount of time that we have, Revelation records several timeless battles. 
And what I mean by that is there is a battle throughout the book of Revelation between two cities, two lords, and two forces. Often throughout the book of Revelation, this, this battle between two cities is a battle between a city named Babylon and a city named New Jerusalem. Now, historically speaking, for the author John, Babylon represented the Roman Empire, which they were living, early Christians were living under. So there's a historical piece, but Babylon also represents the kingdom of darkness. On the other side, New Jerusalem represents our future home heaven, and New Jerusalem represents the kingdom of God, a battle of two cities. You with me? The second is a battle of two lords. You might guess there is a lord, lowercase l, over Babylon. Again, historically speaking, could have been Nero at the time. um, But in the kingdom of darkness, the lord, lowercase l, over the kingdom of earth is who? Satan. A real figure, by the way. Not imaginary. On the other side, the Lord over New Jerusalem is Jesus, the King of Kings, capital L, Lord of Lords. So there's a battle of two cities, a battle of two lords, and there is a battle of two forces. You might guess it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness. There are evil forces in this world that represent the kingdom of darkness, Babylon. On the other side, you'll read through Revelation, there are angelic forces. There is the Holy Spirit who empowers God's people and represents the kingdom of God. Now, who wrote Revelation and what is it? A prophet named John, who was living as a prisoner of Rome on an island called Patmos off the Aegean Sea, wrote what we know today as the book of Revelation. In Greek, Revelation is apocalypse. Now, just as I have mentioned before, as you read through the Bible, every book of the Bible is, has a particular type of literature. If you read through the Gospels, they are narrative, it's historical. If you go to Psalms, Song of Solomon, um, Proverbs, those are poetry or wisdom books. Revelation has its own particular type of literature, and that is Apocalypse. Now, those who John was writing to at the day would have recognized that type of literature. And here, if you'll follow along with me, here is what apocalyptic writing means or is. It is one that recounted a prophet's vision or dreams that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present can be viewed in light of history's final outcome. Now, I know that's a lot of words. Let me explain. An apocalyptic writing and what Revelation is, is John is giving us an account of the vision that he saw, the dream that he saw. And in doing so, it gives us insight from a heavenly perspective. What God is doing in the heavenlies. It's a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective, on current events, on history, and in light of what is to come through the, the final victory that Jesus will bring to us. So here we go. Who is he writing to? Well, sometime in the last third century, which is when we believe Revelation was written, there were seven churches in today's western Turkey that were struggling with faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Seven churches. If you read the first couple chapters, John identifies those very clearly. 
These churches were struggling being faithful to Jesus Christ. And Revelation is a letter written to them on how to live as Christian descendants in an empire racked by violence, power, exploitation, and arrogance. I love what Michael Gorman writes. He says that Revelation is not about rapture out of this world as much as it is about faithful discipleship in this world. We make the mistake of reading the book of Revelation, learning how one day we are going to escape. When is this going to happen? When is it going to come when we will be out of this world? When we should be reading the book of Revelation, recognizing, God, what are you saying while I'm in this world? How do I live faithfully to you in the midst of that? That is how to read the book of Revelation. And with that, it may be one of the most relevant books for Jesus followers today. All right, my intro on the book of Revelation is done. As we go to the fifth chapter, what we are going to see as we talk about Nike, as we talk about how are we victorious, how do we win, how do God's people conquer at the end, John gives us a very surprising image of our conqueror. So here we go, chapter 5, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was a writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Now, all of you have probably seen, seen enough movies or TV shows to recognize what seals and scrolls looked like during this time, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, okay? It would have been a rolled up piece of paper that had important information on the inside, and you would have seen an emperor or king take one of those red wax seals and put his stamp from his ring, you know what I'm talking about? So this is the picture that John gives us, but only instead of one seal, there is a scroll with seven seals, And an angel shouts out, who is worthy to open the scroll? But he says, there is no one in heaven or earth or under earth who is able to open it and read it. So then this is John's response. Again, this is his dream or vision. John writes, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has one, guess what that word is, Nike. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John takes us with him to this throne room in heaven where we now are given one of the most crucial and surprising images in all of the, in all of the book. Here he sees a mighty angel holding this scroll with seven seals. The problem is no one is worthy to open it. But then one of the elders speaks out and introduces us to the Lion of Judah. We'll talk about this next week. It's a reference of the Messiah from Genesis chapter 49. But as we would expect of the Messiah, we are told that the Lion is not only worthy to open the scroll... But that the lion has won the victory. The lion of Judah has overcome. 
However, right here, John gives us a most unexpected image. Don't miss this. What John hears from one of the elders is says, look, he hears this. Look, the Lion of Judah is worthy to open the scroll and the Lion of Judah has won. But in just a moment, we're going to see when he turns, he sees something very different. What he hears and what he expects is to see a lion. But all of a sudden, he looks to heaven and John sees not a lion, but what? Lamb. A lamb that looked as though if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. This lamb that he saw had seven horns, seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent into every part of the earth. John did a double take. Because what he heard was that it was a lion who was worthy to open the scroll. What he heard, it was a lion who had conquered and will bring the victory. But what he saw was a slain lamb. The lion is a symbol of ultimate power. The other, the lamb, is a symbol of gentle vulnerability. And through sacrifice, it represents weakness of death. In the book of Revelation, it is the lamb that Jesus is referred to 28 times. Here in this one vision, two completely opposing images are fused together into one. And from this moment on... John and his readers back then and for us today, we are to understand this. Victory won by the lion was accomplished through the death of the lamb. And here's what Revelation reveals in this chapter and as you read through it. Revelation reveals that there is a way of the lamb. There is team lamb to use an athletic reference. And there is a way of the beast. There is team beast. You are either on team lamb or you are on team beast. And they have different playbooks. They have different styles of play. They run different offenses, if you will. In the very next chapter, we won't look at it today, but Revelation chapter 6, John references how team beast operates. He references how kingdom of darkness, how Babylon works. And he talks about four horses. They each have different colors. And one horse represents conquest. Another horse represents war. Another one represents famine. Another one represents death. And that is the ways of this world he's speaking of. He's actually referencing the Roman Empire as well. There are two radically different styles that face off against each other. And ultimately, it's the showdown between the way of the lamb or the way of the beast. But here in chapter 12, if we go forward a few chapters, John reveals the playbook. He reveals the way of team lamb. And it's this. They have defeated him. Who? Satan. They have defeated him. How? By the blood of the lamb And by their testimony, some of your translations, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Notice very carefully how Team Lamb wins. How does Team Lamb defeat Team Beast? By the blood 
of the lamb and by the testimony. What does by the blood of the lamb mean? It means that we experience ultimate victory through the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary. It also means that we identify with the death, we identify with the suffering, we identify with the humility, we identify with the position of the Lamb. Jesus said when he was here on earth, if you want to gain your life, do what? Lose it. You want to win, lose. No one in here today wants to be a loser. That's what Team Lamb is. You want to win, you do it by losing. Identifying with team lamb means that we die. It means that we suffer. It means that we take the position of humility. Not a position of power, but a position that is lowly. That is identifying with the blood of the lamb and team lamb. But then we also win by our testimony or the word of our testimony. This word testimony in the Greek, it's pronounced marturia. And it's from the word in which we get the word martyr. What does a martyr do? How do you become a martyr? You die. Now there are those today and throughout the history of the church that have physically given their life in every essence of that word to be martyrs for the church of Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that to meaning that you and I as followers of the lamb, as followers of Jesus have to die. Die to ourself. Die to our pride. Die to the way in which we want to do things. That is what it means to identify with the lamb. It's understanding that ultimate victory, ultimate Nike, belongs to those who are faithful not only to the Lamb, but are faithful to the ways of the Lamb. The fact that Jesus overcomes through dying challenges our way of doing things. If we're really honest with ourselves, We like to gain political or social power to dictate God's terms from the top down. We don't want to be losers. We want to be winners. And by contrast, Jesus shows us that true victory, true Nike, comes in sacrifice and weakness, which force us to depend on God's vindication. Jesus' followers must imitate the Lamb's example. John wrote, they defeated him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. And the last line of that was, they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. They did not love their way of doing things. They did not love their desires, their passion, their pride so much that they weren't afraid to die. Those who desire to win must lose. That's how it is in God's kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27... If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Think back to the time of Jesus. We talk about this, and many of you know this. The line of Judah, which we'll talk about next week, refers, it's, it's a messianic connection. And the people of Israel at the time of Jesus expected a Messiah. And they wanted that Messiah to be a lion. They expected a Messiah who was going to come in and drop kick and throw down some holy jiu-jitsu on their enemies and pull out their automatic weapons and take them down 
They didn't want a lamb. They wanted a lion. But what did they get? They got a lamb. Is it so far off that we don't want the same thing? We read the book of Revelation and we say, Jesus, bring it on. Send your fire down and wipe out those who stand against us. Wipe out those who call us by name. Would you bring it all to an end? We want the lion and we want to hear him roar. And John says, he looks, no, the way to victory is a lamb. It's death. It's suffering. It's why... We move, some move, from the position of being Christians who are patriotic to Christians who are nationalists. And there's a difference. One of the best definitions of Christian nationalism, I believe, is by Pastor Jeremy Beller, who writes, Christian nationalism is the intertwining of the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of men. In an American context, it is often displayed by describing America through the language reserved for the kingdom of God. It is a marriage between patriotism and righteousness that blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And unfortunately, there are Christians today that equate America, the fate of America, with the fate of God's kingdom, making one political party God's party and the other party Satan's party. Let me have you know that the cause of any political party is not the cause of Christ, nor is the battle for our nation a battle for the kingdom of God. <laughs> Hear me in this. America... As much as I love our country, America, like every other nation on earth, is part of a worldly system. It is part of the kingdoms of this earth. America is Babylon. It is not New Jerusalem. It is not the kingdom of God, nor is it a special manifestation of the kingdom of God. In fact, God's kingdom values are often directly in opposition to the values of this country. Let me remind you, since 1973, there have been 60 million babies aborted. We lead the world, America does, in making and the exporting of pornography. Our murder rates, drug rates, and alcohol abuse are off the charts. And much of our history has been marked by racial injustice. To equate America with God's kingdom or to merge the cross of Jesus Christ with the flag of America is idolatrous. And that is the problem of Christian nationalism. Some of you may say, Pastor, are you saying that we should not be patriotic? No, that's not what I'm saying. There is a difference between a Christian who is patriotic and a Christian who is a nationalist. You can love your country. You should love your country. Are you saying that we shouldn't vote or engage in politics? No, we need more men and women in civil government who look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, live like Jesus, and we should vote for them. But the minute we think that America has the market on the kingdom of God or a particular candidate or a particular party represents the kingdom of God, we have crossed the line into idolatry. We need to be reminded that victory lies with God. 
And is, that victory is accomplished as often through our apparent defeat as it is through any public triumph. Our Nike, our victory belongs to those who are faithful to the Lamb and His ways. Would you stand to your feet? I know that on Palm Sunday, this is not... (laughs) Some of you want us to go back to Hosanna. I just told everybody they need to be losers. The people of Israel wanted the same thing. That's why they waved palm branches. They wanted a king who would ride in on a white horse with a sword. And instead, they got a lamb who came in on a donkey. Who gave up his life. It's why Jesus calls us to love our enemies. It's why Jesus can call us to turn the other cheek. To think of others more than we do ourselves. That is the way of the lamb but when we live the way of the lamb John writes he saw the vision we're victorious heavenly father all of us every single one of us including me fall into idolatry now it's not always political idolatry sometimes it's materialism it's individualism But whatever it may be, right now, I pray that your spirit would do surgery on our hearts, would convict us. Being a part of Team Lamb isn't easy. It means we die. It means we humble and we lower ourselves. We don't rely on the systems, on the powers, and the ways of this world. It's completely opposite. And boy, do we need your help with that. Only through the power of your spirit can we live that out on a daily basis. So now as we leave, I pray that we would represent you, Team Lamb, well. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our families. For you have brought us the ultimate Nike, the ultimate victory through the blood of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, I invite you Thursday night. Um, I invite you Thursday night. We're having a Monday Thursday is the church liturgy name for that. It's a time when Christ, uh, a representative of the final Passover feast he had with his disciples on the last Thursday before Easter, where he commanded us, mandated us to break bread, to gather, to love one another. And that's what we're going to do 7 p.m. Thursday night right here. Look forward to seeing you then. God bless you.